he says the water arrived with a roar and he pointed to his chest and said, it reached there. Monsoon rains have caused catastrophic flooding in Pakistan. Millions of people are displaced. It's Tuesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, Pakistani officials say a third of the country is underwater and more than a thousand people have died. Also ahead, as she may be winding down her amazing career, we take a look at Serena Williams' legacy both on and off the court. And while the government has sent evacuation orders to Ukraine's Donbas region, many people remain. One sparsely open city has become a hub for Ukrainian military members taking a break from the front lines. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's tapping into his Pennsylvania roots as he promotes an agenda to fight crime that would include a ban on assault-style weapons. He's speaking in Wilkesbury this hour about crime prevention, gun control, and police funding. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police, it's fund the police. Fund the police. Biden's delivering remarks in a battleground state a little over two months before the midterm elections. Republicans are also making law enforcement issues central in GOP campaigns to win back seats in Congress. The White House says it is ready to help as parts of Mississippi's capital city are without running or potable water. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports a water crisis is unfolding in Jackson after flooding exacerbated long-standing deficiencies at the city's water treatment plants. The state has declared a public health emergency with no safe drinking water available in Mississippi's largest city. Governor Tate Reeves says Jackson's water treatment system is failing. It means the city cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs. Reeves has activated the National Guard to help distribute drinking and non-potable water. Schools and businesses are closing as officials scramble to repair the system that serves about 180,000 customers. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Powerful storms have been resulting in power outages across Michigan. Utility companies were reporting more than 378,000 customers without electricity earlier today. DTE Energy said... It was bringing in crews from across the country to help with repairs. The day after 70-mile-per-hour winds took down thousands of power lines. Utilities projecting most people will get their power restored in two days. Billionaire Elon Musk is asking a Delaware court to delay a trial that will determine whether he can walk away from his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. Musk has asked the judge to push back the trial from October to November. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has the latest. The legal filings stating Musk's rationale are under seal, but he's sent a big clue in a new letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Musk cites a former Twitter executive's allegations about sloppy security practices. Twitter's former security chief says the company violated an agreement with federal regulators to beef up privacy on the platform. Musk says Twitter failed to disclose those safety concerns before they signed the contract. And he says that omission constitutes fraud, so he should be allowed to walk away from the deal. Twitter says the allegations are inaccurate and lack context. Raquel Maria Dillon reporting. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A $1 billion project designed to bring Canadian hydropower to Massachusetts won a partial legal victory today. Maine's Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that a voter referendum aimed at scuttling the transmission line may have been unconstitutional. Reporter Steve Misler has the story. The court's 39-page ruling says that a referendum supported by an overwhelming majority of Maine voters last year may have violated the state constitution and Central Maine Power's vested rights in the project by retroactively applying new requirements to the regulatory process. In remanding the case back to the state business docket, the court says the referendum should be deemed unconstitutional if CMP can demonstrate to a lower court judge that it engaged in substantial construction and in good faith before voters scuttled it last year. The project was initiated by Massachusetts, which contracted with CMP and Hydro-Quebec to meet its renewable energy targets. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Steve Missler. Emergency crews have contained an ammonia leak at an ice rink in Tewksbury. Fire crews were working with a hazmat team in the area of the Breakaway Ice Center this afternoon and asked people nearby to leave the area. The fire department says all people from the arena have been evacuated. No injuries have been reported. The Ice Center is home to a handful of junior and high school hockey teams. Quinton Palfrey is suspending his campaign for Massachusetts Attorney General. The former assistant AG announced his decision today. He will instead support former opponent Andrea Campbell in her bid for that position. Palfrey's departure leaves two candidates in the Democratic primary, the former Boston City Councilor Campbell and Labor Attorney Shannon Liss Reardon. A new leader will take the reins at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts in January. Sarah Island has been named CEO of the insurer. She's a former leader of the, at the organization and in Massachusetts government health care reform. Island is returning to Massachusetts after nearly a decade, including time as chief operating officer at Blue Shield of California. Just really looking forward to digging in, getting up to speed on all of the work that's been going on here over the last eight years and taking it from there. Island will replace Andrew Dreyfus, who is retiring. Sports, the Red Sox take on the Twins again tonight out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The high tomorrow around 90 degrees. Thursday should be sunny. The high is around 82. Right now it's 87 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Pakistan is in the grips of catastrophic flooding. Officials say one-third of the country is underwater, the result of relentless monsoon rains. More than a 1,000 people have died. Nearly half were children. Today, the UN launched an appeal with the Pakistani government to raise millions in emergency aid. NPR's Dia Hadid just visited one area affected by the floods and is with us now from Peshawar. Hi, Dia. Hi, Ari. Dia, tell us about where you went and what you saw today. Well, we went to the town of Noshera in northern Pakistan, and parts of it were flooded when heavy rain made the nearby river burst its banks over the weekend, and people were scraping mud out of their homes and drying their utensils on the road. On the outskirts, we saw men herding cows through a flooded field, and one fell into a pit. It it took about four men to push her out again. We drove past submerged cornfields to a neighborhood where boys were swimming in alleyways. 
to be fair, it was a hot day. Their fathers were waiting for government assistance, like Waqar Khan. He said they were warned the floods were coming because imams in mosques made announcements over loudspeakers. So he says they sent away women and girls to stay with relatives in safer areas and they stayed back to guard their homes. But he said it felt unreal because the river is two miles from his house. But he says the water arrived with a roar and he pointed to his chest and said it reached there. Wow, it sounds incredibly dramatic, but also like lives were saved because people got warning that the water was coming. Yeah, and you know what? People said this was the worst flooding they'd ever seen, and this town has been hit really hard by floods in the past. But river flooding is predictable. And so the local district commissioner got mosques to broadcast warnings. In some places, she and other staff personally marched from door to door to warn people to leave. But in other parts of Pakistan, there wasn't time to do this because there, in other areas, there was flash flooding and heavy rains and it all came without warning and so hundreds of people were killed. And many others have lost their homes. Where are they staying? Well, the luckiest are staying with relatives, but we saw plenty of people who were homeless and the government is converting schools and hostels to accommodate them. We visited one college in Noshera. People just kept turning up and dozens of them crammed outside of room, desperate to, to register for aid. And women were smushed in so hard, they'd lost their headscarves. And, and this is a conservative area where most women cover their faces. Somebody had smashed part of the door. Camp volunteers had to block it with a chair to stop people from barging in. I, I recorded some of the sound. This is what it sounded like. Wow. So as we mentioned, the Pakistani government launched an appeal today with the UN. What are they hoping for? Well, they're hoping for $160 million to pay for emergency aid. Washington has already pledged $30 million. But Pakistan's planning minister estimates I'll need around $10 billion to rebuild. And, you know, more than 100,000 homes are damaged. Schools, roads, bridges have all been washed away. And, And there's a sense that wealthy countries should step up. Pakistan is one of the world's most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change, like these unprecedented rains, which the UN chief today called monsoon on steroids and a climate catastrophe. But, you know, Ari, back in Noshera, I had asked Wakar Khan what he thought made the flood so bad this year. And he told me, you know, surely it's an act of God. And when I explained to him that science shows that human-made climate change was making these floods more intense, he was actually surprised. And he said, well, if people know what's making these floods so bad, why don't they stop them? That is NPR's Dia Hadid in Peshawar, Pakistan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. Last night, Serena Williams cleared the first hurdle to winning another championship. On the first day of the U.S. Open, the 23-time Grand Slam champion defeated player Donka Kovinich of Montenegro in a 6-3-6-3 victory. Williams announced earlier this month that she plans to, quote, evolve away from tennis after this year's tournament. And if this is indeed the last time the world will see her in action, her legacy is already established both on and off the court. Chanda Rubin is a former top 10 professional tennis player and a commentator for Tennis Channel. We reached her at the U.S. Open Tennis Championship in New York. Chanda Rubin, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you are a member of a very small club, uh, the club of people who have played Serena Williams 
and beat her. What is it like staring across the net, waiting to return that serve? It can be a bit intimidating simply because, you know, as a player, you know that she has one of the best serves, if not the best serve in the history of the women's game. And yeah. it's a formidable weapon. She can hit it to each spot in the court in the service box. So you, you don't often see it coming. You can't really predict. So it puts more pressure on your serve. So there's a lot of different things that come into play when you're facing Serena Williams. No, oh, I, um, I was going back and reading about that match. And I think the detail I loved the most was something that she told you after you won? Yes. I played her in a um, tournament in Los Angeles, and I was able to win that match in a tie break in the third set. That's like the closest a match can really be. And at the end of that match, you know, she was so kind to warm me up the next day. And just to give you a little reference, that never happens. If you beat a player or, you know, you play somebody the next day, they don't want to have anything to do with you. And so she was kind enough to warm me up. And after that, she told me, now go win the tournament. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know what? I think I should. And of course I did. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when you beat Serena, you feel like, okay, I'm playing pretty well. Yeah, and I can handle I anybody this. else across the net. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're t we talked about her serve. We talked about what it's like to beat her, you know, at least once. What do you think, though, made her so dominant for so many years? Because she wasn't just great that year or the year after or the year after. Right. She's been great for like a long time. Decades. It's incredible to even think about it. And, you know, what I think sets her apart is, is you know, the physical skills that she has. Um, you know, she's powerful from the ground. She can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody and out-hit most players, if not every player at any given point. And so you're dealing with that factor as well. How do you catch up to her shots? How do you try to read and get a jump on things? But I think what has allowed Serena to dominate is the strength of will that she has. It is the ability to get into a pivotal moment in a match and raise her level, to just immerse herself in the competition at hand, to not shy away from that. And I think over the course of a match, a lot of players, they can't match that. Um, and a part of her legacy, obviously, and, and of her sister Venus's too, is that these were two Black women who spent part of their childhood in Compton, dominating a sport that had been seen for so long as white, as elitist, um, you know, you came up as, as another black female player a few years ahead of them. So you've walked that walk. I wonder how much does it feel like they've changed the sport? I think they've changed the sport tremendously. You know, first and foremost, their story is one that is incredibly special. And I don't think we'll see that again in sport. It's not easy to win tournaments out here week in and week out to have that kind of consistency. And they were able to do it. Then you you throw into the fact that they were so dynamic as players. You look at, you know, their games and how much fun it was to watch them. You know, they were aggressive. They were attacking players. They showed emotion, Serena in particular. Venus was a bit quieter, but even that contrast made it interesting. And then they're going up against each other. I mean, now you're getting all these eyes on the sport and the fact that they are two black women at that point and minorities in a predominantly white sport, it just brought so much interest. And yeah. you have now a whole new demographic of, you know, kids. And, and players who can relate and who are interested in the sport. 
So you, again, you've walked this walk to, to play at, at such a high level and then to figure out when it's time to, to leave the game. And I just wonder, any advice as she's heading into this next chapter of her life? I mean, it's it's hard to think of, you know, any advice that, you know, I could give to Serena at this stage. You know, so much of what she's doing is uncharted territory because of who she is. I do think the transition out of the game and, and into the next phase of her life, I think that can be tricky. And I think it, you know, be interesting to see how she approaches it, having more freedom, not having as much time taken up with practicing and training. And I would just encourage her to embrace it all. Yeah. She is now one Grand Slam title away from tying the all-time record. Um, how do you how do you rate her chances of one more U.S. Open trophy? Well, I, first and foremost, I have and will go on record saying I don't think Serena needs to win another major. Getting through this first round, that's a huge milestone. You know, the first rounds of any big tournament, let alone a Grand Slam, are always tricky. And I think for Serena, when she gets going, you got to like her chances. And how incredible would it be if she were able at the end of, of this year's U.S. Open to be holding the trophy? There's still a ways to go but it's going to be fun watching the ride. Chanda Rubin, thank you. You're welcome. Chanda Rubin of Tennis Channel. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, as the school year begins, we travel to Uvalde, Texas, and meet Kimberly and Felix Rubio. Their 10-year-old daughter, Lexi, was a victim of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School, and they're honoring her with beautiful memorials and activism. I just kept thinking about other moms, really. Um, I don't want anybody to feel the way I feel. Hear more of that story tomorrow and other reporting from Uvalde throughout this week on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, how one Ukrainian city has become a hub for Ukrainian military members taking a break from the front line. In business news, Natick-based MathWorks has purchased a new office building. It's paying nearly $18 million for a 115,000-square-foot building in Natick. It's right next door to the software company's two campuses in the town. The site is the former home of Boston Scientific Corporate Headquarters. MathWorks has not said yet what it plans to do with its new building. On Wall Street, stocks were off again today. The Dow down 308 points, or 1%, at 31,791. NASDAQ was off 135 points, or 1%, at 11,883. And the S&P 500 was off 44 points, at 3986. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction.
Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of some showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The high will be around 90. Thursday should be sunny. The high around 82. Sunny and a bit cooler around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday, mostly sunny. The high around 84. Right now, it's 87 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, the front line of the Russian invasion has not moved in weeks. Cities there see shelling every night. Ukrainian officials have ordered evacuations, saying that with scarce resources like fuel and the constant threat of Russian missiles, it's just too dangerous to stay. But in a recent visit to the frontline city of Slovyansk, NPR's Alyssa Nadworny found a shuttered town where residents persist. When you enter the city, a metal sign above the road greets you. Slovyansk is Ukraine, it reads. And after more than six months of Russia's invasion, it still is. The electricity here is spotty and buses aren't running. Most of the people you see in the city center are on bikes because of it. <laughs> Oksana Morahone and her friend Alexander Alayarov are among them. Morahone, with a bag of grapes tied to her bright orange bike, says it's a really scary existence. They're biking together for safety. They always try and stick together if they can. Alayarov lives with his wife and three kids next door to Morahone and her husband. They don't sleep at night because of the shelling. Their neighbors sleep in the hallways to get away from the windows. Morahone and Alyarov have been friends for a long time, and that friendship has kept them sane. Every night they're calling each other, asking, are you okay, how are you? Community is really important, they tell us, especially when you're in a state of survival. Morahone works as an assistant at the market. There, she says, she can see who's still here, which makes her feel less alone. According to the mayor's office, about 20% of residents remain, despite constant shelling, spotty water access, and no natural gas. Morahone tells me people stay because leaving without a place to live feels scarier. Walking through town, most shops are boarded up. In addition to the market, there's a very limited amount of businesses open. Two or three coffee shops, mostly kept up and running by the Ukrainian military, fighting on the front lines just 20 minutes away. We're here relaxing, says a soldier who goes by the call sign Petrovich. He doesn't give us his full name for safety reasons. The lines haven't moved much in recent weeks, he tells us, and a stalemate for troops means you're constantly on edge without much happening. A few blocks from the coffee shop, several onlookers have come to see the damage from a Russian missile that hit a residential building a few hours before we visit. 
Victoria Botichenko is crying as she tells us about the pain she feels. I'm thinking about the people who have no home now, she says. She tells us about the history here. In 2014, the city was taken over briefly by Russian-backed forces when they annexed Crimea and part of the Donbass. Here, they worked to rebuild after that. We're Ukrainians, she says. We've always been part of Ukraine. I want to live in Ukraine. Nearby, Lubav Mali, with an orange kerchief tied around her head, is listening to our conversation. What my home? This is my house, she says, pointing just beyond the crater left by the missile. All by yourself or are you with someone? Uh, She's widowed. Her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren have all left Slovyansk for Kyiv or Europe. She passes the days writing and reciting poetry. She shares one with us. It's about bringing peace to her home. Let there be peace that is so hoped for, the poem goes. Let the storms go, she finishes, and long live the Donbass and Slovyansk. Alyssa Nadvorny, NPR News, Slovyansk, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Violence in Baghdad has now killed at least two dozen people and injured hundreds in the last two days. Supporters of the popular cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, some of them armed, clashed with Iraqi security forces, which include members of Iran-backed militias. The fighting comes as a result of a deadlock in forming a government some 10 months after parliamentary elections. There's a split between Sadr and Iran-backed groups. Sadr has now told his supporters to end their protests and to leave government areas that they have occupied. To understand more about the situation, we have reached Sarhang Hamasaid, the Middle East Programs Director for the United States Institute of Peace. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to have you. So can you just first help us understand better who Muqtadar al-Sadr is? Like, he is one of Iraq's most powerful leaders. What else can you tell us about him? Yeah, Muqtadar al-Sadr uh, comes from a religious family. His father and his uncle uh, have been known as to be uh, religious credentials. In recent years, he has been able to brand himself as a Iraqi leader who is against foreign interference, including Iranian inter- interference, who uh, stands for justice for Iraqi nationalism. And Iraqi civil society leaders have allied with him in different uh, elections. And the jury is still out. How much do you believe this rebranding? Well, I understand that his block was the biggest winner in Iraqi elections last fall. But then this summer, all of his allies in parliament quit in protest. What happened there? He formed an alliance with the, 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 um, the Sunni Arabs of Iraq and uh, a major force of the Kurds, the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Uh, that gave him enough votes uh, in parliament to be able to form a government and appoint a prime minister. The uh, Iranians and their uh, allies in Iraq have managed to form what was known as the obstructing third in the parliament, so about 120, 130 votes that prevented al-Sadr from uh, uh, forming the government. The deadlock in the political process and in the electoral process led to, as you rightfully mentioned, Sutter to decide that he would 
actually ask all the MPs who were representing him in Parliament to quit, uh, and they did so uh, in June, and uh -huh. and that meant and to this date it is a huge point of surprise. Why did he give up this much parliamentary parliamentary mm -hmm. power uh, in the system? Still, can you explain how this current power struggle in Iraq, how this current political situation? could affect U.S. interests. Yeah, yes. So the U.S. has several interests in Iraq. Uh, obviously, uh, from a national security standpoint, a stable um, and democratic Iraq serves, Iraq serves in the way where Iraq does not become a place for terrorism. Second, Iraq is a major oil producer. Uh, so, so for the stability of the global economy and for U.S. allies, uh, this, is an, this is an important uh, factor. And third, for regional stability, Iraq is an important country uh, where um, the, 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 the Iraq and the countries of the region uh, are unhappy with the expansion that Iran had in the region. So there are several factors that uh, Iraq plays an important role for U.S. interests. But the U.S. leverage to affect those outcomes is far less today than it was some years ago. That was Sarhang Hamasaid, the United States Institute of Peace's Middle East Programs Director. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 87 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, the story behind the longest baseball game ever. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of some showers tonight. Lows around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90. Thursday should be sunny, high 82 degrees. Sunny and a bit cooler, around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 84. Right now it's 87 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Discover something new each time you visit. Summertime is limited, though your experiences at the Museum of Science are not. Tickets at MOS.org. Central American migrants seek entry into the United States for jobs and also because of the threat of drug cartels. It's very difficult to separate the fear from the economic need. I would say both of them come together. Voices of Migrants in Tijuana, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Pakistan and the United Nations are jointly appealing to other countries for emergency financial assistance. Pakistan has been devastated by weeks of heavy rains, which have killed more than 1,100 people and left large portions of the country underwater. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres attributes the situation to a climate catastrophe that is putting the entire world in danger. As we continue to see more and more extreme weather events around the world, it is outrageous that climate action is being put on the back burner as global emissions of greenhouse gases are still rising, putting all of us everywhere in growing danger. Pakistan is one of the world's most vulnerable countries to the impact of climate change, even though it produces little of the greenhouse gases that cause it. Washington has pledged $30 million to help mitigate the impact on Pakistan. 
The U.S.-China Business Council has released its annual member survey. It says while American companies in China remain overwhelmingly profitable, their outlook for business prospects in the future is dimming. NPR's Emily Fang reports. China remains the most important global market for more than three-fourths of companies surveyed, but that's down from 96% a decade ago. And while U.S. companies are still making money in China thanks to a developed supply chain and a big Chinese market, their optimism is waning. 83% of firms said they were less optimistic about their future in China than they were three years ago. The diminishing confidence is due to China's ongoing COVID-19 controls, which over the last two years have destroyed local economies, as have this summer's heat-related power cuts in tensions with Taiwan. Emily Fang, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished lower across the board today. The Dow was down 308 points, or nine-tenths of a percent. The tech-heavy Nasdaq lost 134 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Democratic Attorney General candidate Quentin Palfrey is ending his campaign for office. Despite winning the official endorsement of the state Democratic Party, the former assistant AG struggled to gain ground on his two better-financed opponents. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. With Palfrey out, the race is now between former Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell and Labor Attorney Shannon Liss-Reardon. Palfrey criticized both throughout the race for their use of super PAC and private money. But he says the gap in funding and polling became too wide for him to justify carrying on. When it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be the next attorney general, it was important to me to you know, to to think about who would be best situated to leave the office. Palfrey is now endorsing Campbell, citing her record of public service. The primary election is next Tuesday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The Massachusetts Supreme Court says there is no merit to arguments made by Republican officials as part of an effort to block portions of the state's voting law that was expanded this year to allow easier access to mail-in and early voting. The court sided with the state in a lawsuit earlier this summer without a full opinion. The justices released their opinion in the case today and called voting a fundamental right. The former Pennsylvania Secretary of Education has been selected as the next Massachusetts Commissioner of Higher Education. The Board of Higher Ed today nominated Noe Otega from a pool of four finalists. Current Commissioner Carlos Santiago will stay on until Ortega is formally hired. An 84-year-old local umpire is preparing to retire tonight after one last game. Jim Hennessy has been calling 63 straight seasons in Brookline for Little League and high school baseball and adult softball leagues. He says there have been very few confrontations over his calls, and he sets a time limit for any player complaints. And if they persist, I'll give them one warning, and if they persist again, I tell them to go to your, go to your car, you're out of here. I haven't done that very often. Hennessy says his advice for umpires is to be yourself, be honest, and fair. In sports, the Red Sox will be taking on the Twins again tonight out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today we're bringing you a story from ESPN's 30 for 30 and Radio Diaries. Baseball is sometimes called the timeless game. Unlike football, basketball, or soccer, there's no clock. The teams keep playing until there's a winner. Theoretically, the game could go on and on forever. Four decades ago, one game came close. On April 18, 1981, two teams played the longest baseball game in history. Red Wings play-by-play baseball. This began as a game of absolutely no consequence. Well, Bob Drew, along with Pete Perez here at McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Pawtucket, Rhode Island is a city of about 70,000 working-class, blue-collar, My name is Dan Barry. I'm a longtime journalist with the New York Times, and I wrote a book about this game. Pawtucket was quite proud of its distinction as the AAA base for the Boston Red Sox. And they had this stadium called McCoy Stadium. It was kind of run down in those days and kind of beat up, but they ran a clean shop. They watched the drinking. They watched the swearing. Families took the kids there, and it was fun. Bill George, I was the official scorekeeper. It was an early season, Saturday night. There wasn't much we were playing for. It was just baseball as usual. My name is Mike Tamburo. I was the general manager of the Pawtucket Red Sox. This was minor league baseball, AAA, where every player is hoping to get noticed and get called up to the majors. On the field that night were two future Hall of Famers. This is Cal Ripken. I played third base for the Rochester Red Wings. All of us were in the same boat. We were all young, and we all had the same fears, the same anxieties. Uh, We wanted to make it, and we wanted to make it bad. This is Wade Boggs. I was the starting third baseman for the Pawtucket Red Sox on that infamous night of 1981. Cool and windy night here in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. The wind blowing right in from center field. The first pitch was thrown a little after 8 o'clock. The wind made it hard to score, and by the end of nine innings, the two teams were tied one-to-one. It stayed that way for several more hours. Normally, an extra inning game would be halted by a curfew at 12.50 a.m. But that year, a paragraph about the curfew had been left out of the umpire's manual by mistake. So on this night, the umpires ruled that the game should go on, with no end in sight. By the 22nd inning, the two teams were still deadlocked, tied 2-2. It was close to 2.30 in the morning. The few fans left in the stands were cold, tired, and hungry. And the concession stands started giving away free food and coffee. Everybody by that time was just punchy, silly. I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. Anyway, here we go. Now we have somebody coming out of the Red Wing dugout, all covered up with a towel or a blanket or something to keep warm. Everybody's bundled up so tight it's hard to tell who the players are. That'll bring up... Make that As we were getting colder, we found a uh, metal trash can and we started building a fire so that we could warm our hands. Our broken bats became firewood. We were breaking off ends of the wood bench to burn. You know, we threw that in there. We got invited to come down to Ben's box, the owner's box, 
And that's when the Chevis Regal Scotch came out. <laughs> we were sitting there, I think it was me, Debbie Boggs. We were all just huddled under all these blankets, just taking swigs out of the bottle. Hey, what? I'd like to thank all of you people who have stayed with us tonight. I hope you're having a big party back there in Rochester, and we're going to try to win it for you. There were people calling the ballpark because their husband or son or whoever was not coming home. Dennis Craig, the um, plate umpire, had brought his nephew to the ball game at one o'clock. His mother is so concerned. This was before the cell phones, before the internets. She called the city, who called the county, who called the state. They were looking over every bridge, looking for taillights. Finally, they traced him back to the ballpark. The officer calls the mother and says, Ma'am, we have found your son. He is safe. They're in the 27th inning. It's 2.30, quarter of 3, 3 o'clock, 3 10, 315. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. There are 28 fans left in McCoy Stadium. <laughs> 28 loyal fans, bro. Started out with 1,700. We're down to 28. Would you people down Not for one second did I ever think, okay, I'm going to go home and sleep now. There was no way. I was there till the bitter end. <laughs> And Bob, for the fans that are still awake back in Rochester, I would like for you to listen to the post-game show right after the conclusion of this ball game, if it ever does end. As the innings mounted, and we got to 25 innings, 27 innings, 30 innings, we figured we've got to be close to a record here. Baseball history puts a lot of emphasis on records. Most hits in a game, uh, most home runs hit in a season, most this, most that, all kinds of crazy records. I'm thinking, wow, we have a chance here tonight in little old Pawtucket, Rhode Island, to get in the history books. It became what you were playing for at some point, you know? Because something good had to come out of this crazy night, or else we all froze our rear ends off for nothing. Here it is, 4 o'clock in the morning, the 32nd inning. It's even absurd to say that in baseball, to say the 32nd inning. Rochester gets a guy on second base. Uh, the batter hits a single to right field. The pitch, there's a shot, and Mike gets through there. It does out in the right field for a base hit. John Hale is rounding third. Hale was trying to score. It would have been the ball game, you know, put Rochester ahead. The manager for the Rochester Red Wings is waving his arms like a windmill. Get your home. Get home. The right fielder for the Pawtucket Red Sox is Sam Bowen. Now, Bowen has to try and throw this guy out. And the entire game rides on this play. So let's pause here. <laughs> Imagine being Sam Bowen. You've been in right field for seven-plus hours, on and off. Uh, I asked Bowen, did you ever think about not giving it your best throw, maybe throwing it over the backstop? And Bowen really 
got angry with me. He said, this is what I do. I am not going to do anything less than my best. Even though this guy is never going to make it back to the major leagues, and he knows it, he is not going to let this guy score. Sammy takes it on two hops and makes a throw, a, a tremendous throw, nails the runner at the plate. Here comes his lead run around the score, and they're going to get him. And he was thrown out from the right fielder to the catcher, and that ends the inning. This is unbelievable. You make that play in the top of the ninth, it's a great play. You make that play in the top of the 32nd, it's a, it's a historic play. To me, it spoke to the true grit of a professional baseball player that in the top of the 32nd inning, at 4 o'clock in the morning, that he would throw out a guy at home plate in those circumstances. So at the end of 32, it's still all tied up at 2. At four in the morning, mentally, I, I kind of lost it. I was saying baseball could kiss my tonight because this is not the way baseball is supposed to be played. When is it going to end? So all through the night, ever since the 15th inning, uh, Mike Tamburo of the Pawtucket Red Sox has been calling Columbus, Ohio. He's been calling the home of a guy named Harold Cooper, who is the president of the International League and who has authority to call the game. We called it 2 o'clock, and he didn't pick up. And we called it 3 o'clock, and he didn't pick up. And we called it 3.30, and he didn't pick up. It wasn't until about quarter of 4 in the morning that he finally answered the phone. He was in a deep sleep, or he was out in some gin mill someplace uh, living it up. I said, Harold, it's quarter of 4 in the morning. We're still playing ball. He said, you're still playing baseball? There's absolutely a curfew. I got Jack Leeds, the third base umpire, brought him into the office. Now the third base umpire is out to the Pawtucket dugout, and so we don't know what the heck's going on. Cooper basically says, end it now. End the game. <laughs> and at 4.07 in the morning on Easter Sunday, the umpires have finally suspended this ball game, and it will have to be played off at a later date. We decided, let's conclude this game, when Rochester would make their next appearance at McCoy Stadium and give these players at least some time off to get some rest. Pete, you got a final word? So, Bo, i just like to say that both teams they played hard the whole 32 innings, and win or lose, the Rochester Red Wings and the Pawtucket Red Sox ought to be commended for a job well done tonight. Once again, the final score from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, the Rochester Red Wings 2, the Pawtucket Red Sox 2 in a suspended game. For Pete Therese and Howie Burns, our engineer back at WPXN, this has been Bob Drew. So long, everybody. Good morning, WPXN. I looked over right field fence. I saw light in the sky. It was actually the beginning of dawn. It was a beautiful Easter Sunday morning. After eight hours and 32 innings, the game still wasn't over. The teams would have to wait two months before finishing. When they finally resumed play, 
Instead of 19 fans in the stands, there were nearly 6,000, with reporters from around the world to watch the end of the longest game in history. To hear that chapter and more, you can find the full story on ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast. This story was produced by Nellie Gillis and the team at Radio Diaries. All Things Considered, from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 86 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, how women are now reinventing the bolero, poetic, aching ballads popular throughout Latin America. That's ahead here on WBUR. If you prefer your page turners with sand falling out, WBUR's arts and culture team has you covered with their pop-up newsletter. Sign up now at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90. Thursday should be sunny. The highs will be around 82 degrees. Sunny and a bit cooler on Friday, around 77. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 84. Again, right now, it's 86 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. And Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, kids are back in classrooms this week and next. Will there be enough teachers, and will those teachers look like the kids? Salem State's Education Department wants to make sure the answer is yes. We learn about their pilot program. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Like a lot of other people who grew up in Latino households, Isabella Herrera has heard many boleros. Sometimes when my parents were feeling nostalgic, they would put on an old bolero and it would remind them of their parents, you know? And, and so it always had like a place in the household. If you have lived a while in the U.S., you have likely heard a bolero too, even if you didn't know it. They're those poetic, aching ballads full of romantic longing, popular throughout Latin America. And even now, they are exactly what Isabella Herrera puts on when she's feeling really sad. The vocal performance is, is sort of just, you can feel the sorrow. It's very palpable. I have to ask, if you've been through any rough breakups, do you just like blast a bolero for catharsis? I will 
pour myself a glass of red wine and I will put on some La Lupe and I will, you know, I will just weep and I'll let it all out. It's very soothing. I love it. The bolero is well over a century old. So these days, the various songs can sound a bit different. In a story for NPR Music, Herrera wrote about how women are now reinventing the genre of boleros. But first, I wanted to know, where does this music come from in the first place? Its origins are in Santiago de Cuba. Uh, in the late 1800s, um, Afro-Cuban troubadours would kind of wander the countryside singing romantic lyrics over guitars. You know, eventually the genre traveled to the capital, to Havana. And then around the 20s and 30s, the music traveled over the Yucatan Peninsula. Once the genre gets to Mexico and specifically to the Mexican capital, that's when it really begins to explode, you know, commercially. Starts getting performed in, in theater. It starts, you know, appearing in movies and the music travels to a broad Latin American audience. And then you have, you know, people from across the region making their own versions of bolero and their own um, ah. styles. And the classic boleros, they were generally written and sung by men, right? Like at least at the beginning, how much did that piece matter? I mean, I think like the history of most other music styles, I think at the beginning, a <laughs> yeah. lot of it was commandeered by men. The lyrics often were gendered. They often, you know, sort of portrayed men as like victims of, you know, this cruel lover. A woman who's unreliable or like a femme fatale sort of figure. And that definitely shaped sort of like the genre from the beginning and, and how it was perceived. Okay, wait, so I need to know, is there like a classic bolero song that totally paints women like that? I definitely think there there are a few. One that comes to mind is uh, Usted, uh, which is originally composed by Gabriel Ruiz, but it's performed by Los Panchos. And it's definitely a complicated song because, you know, it sort of portrays the woman as like the cause of this man's problems. You know, he, he kind of says she's like this hysterical lover who exasperates him and makes him crazy. No juegue con mi pena, ni con mi sentimiento, que es lo único que te... He says, like, usted me desespera, me mata, me enloquece, all these things about making him crazy. But, you know, at another point in the song, he says, like, that this woman is his hope and his life. So it's very much like mm. painting those those kinds of tropes at the same time that, you know, it's fitting into that, that sense of longing. And you write that there's been kind of this new wave of artists in bolero songs, especially like female artists who are reimagining what it means to sing a bolero. In what way do you mean that reimagination? I think there's there's two parts to it because, you know, women sort of in the 60s always performed bolero too. But the difference here now is that these women, they're writing their own songs. You know, many of these songs are still about sorrow. They're about suffering and romance. But, you know, when these songs are written by women, it's not as easy to read them as tropes. Um, you know, you can't revert to like these cliches of women as like a cruel seductress or, you know, some yes. other like patriarchal stereotype. And of course, like men are no longer the center of the songs, right? It's, it's about the woman's perspective. There's another really great uh, bolero, contemporary bolero by the artist Mon Laferte, 
called Funeral that I think is really beautiful and kind of representative of this moment too. You know, it's, it's about like listening to yourself and your needs. It's about confronting when a relationship has come to an end and kind of like centering yourself in that. Nada es para siempre, amor. Vamos a escuchar al she says, nothing is forever, love. Let's listen to our heart. And, you know, it's, such, it's just like a beautiful message about like sort of finding this like self-knowledge and this sort of like attention to the self rather than sort of trying to like kowtow to a man's needs yeah. or anything. And I think that's, it's really important. A hundred percent. You better the song Ay Hombre by Seña Rubinos is definitely a song that sort of explores these lyrical themes of independence, of, you know, self-knowledge. There's there's a moment in the song when she says, you know, Llegará el día en que te vas a arrepentir. Nunca te atrevas a buscarme otra vez. The day will come when you regret it. Like, don't you dare seek me out again. I'll live my life well without you. You know, so there's a little bit of that vengeance, but also it's like this reminder, you know, that like I, I, I can move on. I can I have the independence, you know, yes. I can live my life well without you. <laughs> Words to live by. You know, I'm wondering, does the way Bolero songs, the way that they've evolved with more women reshaping those songs, does that fit into larger shifts in Latin music in general? I just want to be clear that I feel like women have always put forth these kinds of messages. If you listen to a song by La Lupe, for example, she's a classic, classic Cuban artist who really sort of like centered a woman's perspective in the genre bolero. We just haven't really traditionally read it that way. And that's that's the difference. Also, there, of course, there are absolutely more women in this industry now and women who are carving their own path and changing the game even as it remains very male-dominated. So I do think there, the fact that there are a lot more of us is really helping to chip away at these structures. Isabelia Herrera is a contributing editor at Pitchfork, and she wrote, Reimagined for a New Era, Boleros Become Songs of Gendered Rebellion for NPR Music. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from X-Chair, ergonomic home and office chairs. At home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic variable lumbar support as well as LMAX heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash Never Run Out. And from the Lemelson Foundation. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Just a minute before 5 o'clock. Ahead, as all things considered, continues. Voting rights activists say it's extremely difficult for felons in Florida to know if they're eligible to vote. That story's coming up next here on WBUR. The forecast mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90. Right now it's 86 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Davis Mom, committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. More at davismom.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. I'm senior business reporter Zaninjor Enwameka, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced last week that 20 people were charged with illegal voting, an opening salvo from his new election crimes unit. People charged say they thought they could vote. It's Tuesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, coming up the latest on Florida's attempts to change voting laws. Also a profile of the Democrat running for Congress from Alaska. If she wins, she'd be the first Alaska native in Congress. And he's out. An 84-year-old Brookline umpire reflects on 63 seasons of calling baseball games as he retires after one final game. The only thing you have to say is six words. Ball strike, fair foul, out safe, and say nothing else. It's 501. Versus News. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A group of nuclear inspectors, part of the UN's watchdog mission, are in Ukraine to assess the safety and function of Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Today they met in Kyiv with Ukraine's president. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny has more. The leaders of the team from the International Atomic Energy Agency visited with President Volodymyr Zelensky in the nation's capital. Nice to meet you. Nice to How meet you, you again. Good, good. Are you safe, family? Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very You're much. welcome. Zelensky welcomed the team to Ukraine and remarked on the importance of their visit. The team is on its way to check conditions at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is currently controlled by Russia. Nearby wildfires and ongoing shelling have put the security of the nuclear facility in question. To get to the plant, which is in the country's south, inspectors will need to go through front lines in areas with active fighting. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Russia's state-owned energy company Gazprom says it will cease gas flow in one of its most important pipelines to Europe starting tomorrow. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. Gazprom says it'll stop pumping natural gas to Germany through its Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Wednesday to Saturday due to maintenance work, the latest in a series of gas reductions Russia has made to Europe in recent months. Germany says the reduction will not impact its goal of filling its gas storage facilities ahead of schedule. Berlin says it's managed to reduce its dependence on Russian gas from 55 percent before the war to less than 10 percent in the month of August. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. Stronger restrictions on political involvement are taking effect at the Department of Justice. 
roughly two months before the country holds midterm elections. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more on Attorney General Merrick Garland's announcement today. The Attorney General says the department must enforce the law in a neutral and impartial manner. Merrick Garland is tightening restrictions on the Justice Department's political appointees. He says they cannot attend fundraisers or campaign events, no exceptions, even if their family members are running for political office. Garland says it's critical that DOJ workers hold themselves to the highest ethical standards to avoid the appearance of improper political influence. Prosecutors are investigating how top-secret documents came to be stored at former President Trump's home and the role of funders and organizers in the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Consumer confidence rebounded in August as inflation moderated and gas prices fell. That's after three straight monthly declines. The conference board says its consumer confidence index is up nearly 10 percent from last month. Wall Street lower by the closing bell, dropping for a third day. The Dow down 308 points, down nearly 1 percent. S&P 500 down 44, NASDAQ down 134. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. President Joe Biden will travel to Massachusetts in about two weeks. The White House announced today the president will visit Boston on Monday, September 12th, to discuss the infrastructure law that he signed last year. The president visited the Bay State just last month to talk climate change at a former power plant in Somerset. A controversial project that would bring Canadian hydropower through Maine into Massachusetts may still be alive. Last year, Maine voters approved a ballot question that would prohibit construction of electricity transmission lines for the project. Today, the Maine Supreme Court ruled the vote may have been unconstitutional because it appears to have retroactively prohibited construction on a project that already had necessary permits. The high court sent the case back to a lower court for additional proceedings. Energy analysts say the project is critical for Massachusetts to achieve its goal of decarbonization. Early voting for next week's primary election in Massachusetts is now underway. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says just over 17,000 people have cast early ballots in person. Galvin also says he's very happy with mail-in turnout with nearly 300,000 ballots returned. With hundreds of thousands more ballots to be returned, he warns voters that mailing them back might not get them to election clerks in time. They should use one of the drop boxes that are located in every community or take them to the local election office if it's a town where they can get more easy access or they can go to one of the early in-person sessions and drop the ballot off there. Galvin says you cannot drop a mail-in ballot off at a polling place on Election Day. Quentin Palfrey is dropping out of the Democratic primary for attorney general. The former assistant AG says he's now endorsing one of his opponents, Boston, former Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell. I do think that uh, a lot of the things that I've been working to accomplish here are things that she cares a lot about. And so um, I thought that there was some value uh, in this moment where the race is pretty tight in, in saying so. Campbell now faces labor attorney Shannon Liss-Reardon in the final days of the campaign. Liss-Reardon has criticized Paul Frey's endorsement of Campbell as an effort to curry favor with political elites. In sports, the Red Sox will take on the Twins again tonight out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 72 degrees, mostly sunny tomorrow. The high is around 90 degrees. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers and thunderstorms likely before 1 p.m. The high is around 89 degrees. Thursday should be sunny. The high is around 83. Sunny and a bit cooler around 80 on Friday. Right now it's 86 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In Florida, state officials announced recently that they are charging 20 people with voting illegally in the 2020 presidential election. These are the first arrests by the state's new controversial election policing unit. The arrests are raising concerns because many of those charged have told police that they didn't know they were ineligible to vote. For more details, we're joined now by NPR's Ashley Lopez. Hey, Ashley. Hey there. Hey. Okay, so what do we know so far about these people who got charged? So according to state officials, all these folks have a couple of big things in common. One, they voted in the 2020 election, some in person and some by mail. And two, these voters were all convicted of murder or a felony sex offense. They've done their time and they've gone back into society. But given the severity of their previous convictions, they are not eligible to have their voting rights restored under Florida law. And these charges came after the state's new election police force, which was something Republican Governor Ron DeSantis pushed lawmakers to create. He announced those arrests during an event with supporters, and DeSantis said this marked the beginning of the state getting tougher on voter fraud, which experts say remains very rare in U.S. elections. Wait a minute. So going back to the 20 people facing charges, how was it even possible for them to register to vote and cast ballots if they were technically ineligible? I mean, that's the big question here, particularly from those individuals being charged. According to court documents, a lot of these folks thought that they were eligible because election officials sent them a voter registration card. They assumed officials were checking if they were eligible. Some folks even told police they registered to vote as a way of checking to see if they had their voting rights restored. Hmm. Nick Warren with the ACLU of Florida told me there is a bad system in place here that is so complicated that it confuses a lot of returning citizens. There is no simple way for a person who's coming out of their felony sentence to check whether they're eligible to vote. And as I said, the rules are very complicated in Florida. It's as complicated as it can possibly be. Some local election officials in Florida have said that they actually rely on the state to flag voter registration applications for issues like a past felony conviction. The counties only found out that these voters were ineligible once the state was pursuing charges. Well, what are voting rights advocates saying about what they think the state should do about these larger issues that they're flagging? They say the state that state lawmakers should have created a database a while ago that tells people whether they can vote or what they need to do to get their voting rights back. After a 2018 ballot measure requiring the state to to automatically restore voting rights to most felons, state lawmakers passed legislation that required these returning citizens to fulfill every part of their sentence. So like paying any fees or fines in order to regain their voting rights. But they never created a way for these folks to like figure out how much they owe or if they owe anything at all. Hmm. Neil Voles with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition says his group has been asking state officials for years to create a data management system. This should be a catalyst for all of us that we need to focus our effort on solving this problem together rather than turning this into a political punching bag and and using the lives of real people, real citizens in Florida to play politics. Okay, so what happens next? I mean, especially for those people who got charged with crimes again. 
Yeah, well, now these folks are back in trouble with the law, this time for voting. They're facing a third-degree felony, which could mean up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine. And when this police force was first created, there were fears from voting rights activists that it would end up prosecuting people who made mistakes but had no intention of committing voter fraud. What happens next should give us a sense of whether the courts agree with these voting rights advocates. That is NPR's Ashley Lopez. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, thank you. Alaskans will learn tomorrow whether they've elected former Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin to the U.S. House. They voted in an August 16th special election to fill the state's lone House seat for a partial term. The initial results have Palin trailing a little-known Democrat, Mary Peltola. If she wins, Peltola would be the first Alaska native ever elected to Congress. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports from Peltola's hometown of Bethel. Mary Peltola can't wait to get on the river. The wind and rain have let up. The tide is favorable. She's throwing things into her open aluminum boat. Buckets, an anchor, waterproof gloves. Everybody has a float coat? Bethel is a town of 6,000 on the Kuskokwim Delta, upriver from the Bering Sea. Most people here are indigenous, Yupik, like Peltola. She's pulled salmon from this river since she was a child. But for this fishing trip, she has a camera crew with her. Because whatever the outcome of the special election, Peltola will also be on the ballot in November. She needs footage of her fishing for TV ads. It's cumbersome. I want to put this inside here just to have a mic on. It's, it'll be okay. like in here, but we don't have to hide under that right jacket. Right this minute? Well, we can do it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. There's a more serious problem with this fishing trip. There are no fish. It's a tragedy beyond words for this region. Protecting salmon is a major campaign theme. Mary Peltola is 48. She's the daughter of a Yupik mom and a dad from Nebraska who went north to teach school. As she drives her skiff through the braided Kuskokwim, she points out the bank where her great-grandparents lived and on the other side where her mother was born. Yeah, this is uh, kind of the center of my universe just because my uncles taught me exactly where to put the net to get certain kinds of fish. Scientists suspect climate change as a reason why the salmon aren't returning to this river. Some tributaries are open to fishing, so mostly for the camera, Peltola feeds a small curtain of net into the water. She reels it back in, empty. I stay hopeful right until the end because sometimes you get lucky right on the very end meshes. At age 24, Peltola ran for state house and beat an incumbent. She stayed in office a decade, overlapping with then-governor Sarah Palin. They bonded in the state capitol as two pregnant moms in office. Palin didn't respond to interview requests. She vilifies Democrats in general, but recently called Peltola a sweetheart. Peltola isn't bad-mouthing Palin either. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've seen the photos. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think she's great. In the legislature, Peltola was known for uncommon kindness. She was never bitter. She was never angry. She was never partisan. Andrew Halcrow and Peltola were freshman legislators in 1999. The Anchorage Republican ignited fury with a speech 
that he now regrets, saying Bush residents were like children who don't learn to tie their laces because the state keeps sending Velcro shoes. A lot of Alaskans wrote Halcrow off as a racist. But within hours, he says, Peltola was at his office door asking if she could offer a different perspective on the rural energy subsidy he derided. Halcrow became an ally. I think with Mary Peltola, you should never, ever um, misconstrue kindness for somebody who's not going to stand up for what she believes in. Peltola says yelling isn't productive and not her style. The region where I'm from, there is a big premium on being respectful, on not using inflammatory language or harsh tones. Peltola says she once diffused an urban Republican legislator just by pointing out that he, decades her senior, had a longer tenure in Alaska than she did. They got on well after that. To her, that's effective politics. For NPR News, I'm Liz Ruskin in Bethel, Alaska. E. Bryant Crutchfield, the inventor of the Trapper Keeper, has died. The Trapper Keeper, as you might recall, was the hot school supply to have in the 1980s. I mean, I had to have one. That's all you're taking to class? Everything I need in my new Trapper portfolio. Trapper? Traps in all my papers. I'm someone who really likes to be organized, and so um, I think the Trapper Keeper is the origin of that for me. Erin McCarthy is editor-in-chief at Mental Floss. She profiled Crutchfield in 2013 and wrote that the Trapper Keeper's style made it stand out. It was something that allowed you to kind of express your personality in a way that a lot of other school supplies didn't. You could pick a Trapper Keeper that had a dog on it or a soccer player on it, or you could go with a designer series. I was definitely into like the Lisa Frank. And of course, who could forget that Velcro closure? The Trapper Keeper launched in 1978, and its popularity exploded in the 1980s. But it stayed relevant even into a new millennium when South Park aired a Terminator-themed episode about it. And so you see, Ms. Cartman, you cannot buy your son Eric another Trapper Keeper. Not now. Not ever. Right, because it will hybrid with all those other processors and generate a whole new era of technological darkness. Correct. The Trapper Keeper never ushered in technological apocalypse, but it did take over the world in a way. People bought more than 75 million of them. Crutchfield himself was curious why. So when he sent out the first prototypes, he included a feedback card. When McCarthy interviewed Crutchfield for her mental floss profile, she asked him to share his favorite note. Here's a snippet of that conversation. His name was Fred Brown. I said, why did you buy the Trapper Keeper? And his comment on the slip he sent in to me was, he said, I just needed some place to keep my <laughs> And so I showed that at a sales meeting. It, it, you know, kids that age are very open and honest. Crutchfield's own kid, Ken, remembers his dad as a persistent innovator. He was the kind of person that would not accept no for an answer, and he always was looking for a better way to do things. So he's also the type of person that could think outside of the box. Ken Crutchfield also remembers his dad as a family man who loved inviting neighbors over for happy hour. His dad would fix up a Manhattan for himself. As a matter of fact, uh, after he passed, we, we put an honorary Manhattan in the table with us uh, when we had some neighbors over uh, to really kind of celebrate his life as he had left us. E. Bryant Crutchfield, inventor of the Trapper Keeper, died this month. He was 85.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 86 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with the author of She's Nice, Though, which explores why women in particular feel the need to perform niceness in so many situations. In business news, the largest health insurer in Massachusetts has named its first female CEO. Sarah Islin will take over at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts in January. She previously was a senior leader at the company, worked for the state on health care reform, and is now the chief operating officer at Blue Shield of California. She'll be replacing Andrew Dreyfus, who is retiring. Wall Street stocks were off again today. The Dow down 308 points, closing at 31,791. NASDAQ off 135 points, closing at 11,883. And the S&P 500 down 44 points at 3986. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Coming to City Space on Tuesday, September 20th, here and now co-host Robin Young joins NPR correspondent Nina Totenberg for a conversation about her book, Dinners with Ruth. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers tonight. The lows around 73. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs around 90. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. I get told that I'm nice. A lot. And if I don't think about it too hard, I kind of like that. I mean, who doesn't want to be nice? On good days, it means I'm easy to get along with, I'm warm, I'm approachable, I'm someone you want to hang out with, I think. And on not-so-good days, I think to myself, am I too nice? Am I easy to take for granted? Why can't I be, like, intimidating for once? Being a nice person is an identity I have worn for many years, but sometimes it can feel constraining, like I'm doing it just because that's what people expect of me, which is exactly where Mia Mercado finds herself, an Asian woman from the Midwest who's thought long and hard about where agreeability has gotten her and how much her niceness is performative. She's written a whole compilation of essays called She's Nice Though, Essays on Being Bad at Being Good. Mia Mercado joins us now. Welcome. Hi, I would listen to you say my name all day. <laughs> Such a wonderful voice. You're so nice, Mia. Thanks. Yeah, come in with the compliments. <laughs> Well, you know, you say that when people first encounter you, a lot of times they just sort of assume that you're nice. What do you think it is about you that makes people assume that? That is one of the main questions that I had going into this book. Well, let me ask you this, because I ask myself a lot the same question. Where do you think this drive to be nice 
comes from for you personally. I mean, I do think it's fair to say that some of it is about gender, but not all of it, right? Like, like, why do you think you are nice? Oh, for me, it definitely stems from a deep desire for everyone to like me. I desperately want people to like me. And I don't, obviously, that's not a unique thing. I think a lot of people want to be liked. That's, I guess, kind of part of the human condition. But yeah. often I do that at the expense of myself. And just now starting to question like, okay, well, am I, am I being nice and also being myself, which I, I think for a long time, I didn't think that those two things could exist at the same time. Like I had to be agreeable and go along with what someone else said and just nod and smile um, rather than, you know, voice my own opinions. If they say something that I disagreed with, or even if we were going to do something that I was like, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. Yeah. I mean, it does raise really serious questions about where this so-called niceness ends up taking mm -hmm. you right? Like there's this section in your book where you talk about giving yourself over physically mm -hmm. to men mm -hmm. out of fear that you'll somehow hurt their feelings otherwise. Right. And to be clear, we're not talking about non-consensual physical encounters. We're not talking about violations on your person. What we're talking about is something more like, say, a kiss that you decide to go through with, but a kiss that doesn't feel quite mutual on your part. What's the connection there to being nice? in your mind. Why'd you write that in your book, this essay? Yeah. In the past, I've thought that disagreeing with someone is the same as being mean, even if the thing that I'm disagreeing with has to do with my own body. For example, in that, in that instance where I went on a date with a guy that was very kind, I enjoyed talking to him, but didn't feel any kind of romantic attraction. When he wanted to like end the night with a kiss, I thought, well, he's he's being kind. He wasn't being inappropriate. I should just do this thing. I should just do the thing because that is what I have f been taught is the reward for a man who men are generally not expected to have the sort of like softness that women are and like the, to create space like for emotional vulnerability. And I was like, we had really good conversations. Might as well give this guy a kiss. I have totally been there. Yeah. Totally, Mia. Do you have any regret over some of those physical encounters that you wrote about? The regret that I feel has less to do with any one specific person or any one specific event and more feeling regretful that I spent so much time really worried about other people's comfort instead of my own and sacrificing that. I know that there are a lot of women who can relate to what we're talking about. And I'm wondering, what would you like men to think about or anyone who dates women? What would you like them to think about in case the person they're with is just really preoccupied with trying to come off as nice or considerate in these moments, these physical encounters? When I started writing that piece, it came after a conversation I had with my sister where we were like, just recounting all of the guys that we had like just given space to and given time to that we were like, they sucked. They were bad. They were not nice people mm -hmm. and they were not nice mm -hmm. to us, but still we didn't want to leave a sour taste in their mouth. So we just kind of went along with it. And I was talking to my husband about that conversation and I was like, how many people have you kissed that you were like, I didn't really want to kiss them. He was like, none, uh -huh. zero. <laughs> 
And I was like, what? What do you mean? There's never been a situation where you were like, or like not even like as far as that, but like you went on a date with somebody that you didn't really like. He's like, no, why would I do that? And I was like, why would you do that? Why would I do that? That's a good question. Yeah, Yeah. I think rather than trying to get at some sort of answer at like, well, what are men supposed to do? How are, even if we ask and she says yes, maybe she means no. I think the solution is rarely like, oh, here's the thing that you need to do differently. It's more just like, maybe you need to listen a little more. <laughs> I mean, all of that leads me to this larger question that you pose in this book. And that is, let me just read it for you. Are you actually nice if a part of your motivation is for others to see you as such? I read that question, and I guess my question back to you, Mia, is why wouldn't that count as nice? I mean, obviously, there's a difference between fake nice and manipulative versus just wanting to be a better person and looking for external feedback from others on how to be that better person, right? Right. Oh, I definitely agree that if you are trying to be nice, regardless necessarily of your motivation, if the end result is in favor of kindness... I I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, And I absolutely don't have the answer as far as are you a good person if your motivations are to be seen as a good person. But just for my own self-evaluation, I feel like I need to understand why I'm doing something in order to feel like I understand myself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like everyone understanding themselves better helps us understand each other. I couldn't agree more. Mia Mercado's new book is called She's Nice Though, Essays on Being Bad at Being Good. Thank you so much for being with us. It was so nice to talk to you. (laughs) It was really nice to meet you. (laughs) We're inseparable. Oh, yeah. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 85 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, an 84-year-old baseball umpire in Brookline prepares to walk away after 63 years of calling balls and strikes. We'll talk with him about his career, his last game, and his advice for a new generation of umps. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of some showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90 degrees. Thursday should be sunny, high of 82. Sunny and a bit cooler, around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny, the highs around 84. Again, right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. Imagine if the Dockers are playing catch up here. What is it like for the young people, the adolescents, the teens experiencing this pain saying, what the heck is going on? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. State health officials in Texas have reported the first death of an adult diagnosed with monkeypox. Harris County officials say the man's immune system was severely compromised and the case is still under investigation to see what role monkeypox played in the death. That viral disease is rarely fatal and the federal government continues to monitor the outbreak. U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra says they are also trying to reach out to the gay community, which is at greatest risk of spreading the virus. Our focus every day is making sure that those most at risk for monkeypox have the information and resources they need, vaccines, tests, treatment, to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. As Bob mentioned, our latest effort involves working with state and local governments across the country to set up vaccination clinics at key upcoming festivals. In other news, China's ruling Communist Party has finally set a date for the start of the much-anticipated 20th Party Congress. That meeting will kick off on October 16th. As NPR's John Ruwich tells us, leader Xi Jinping is poised to get an unprecedented third term as party boss. The Chinese Communist Party holds a national congress once every five years. The gathering charts a course for the country for the coming period. They also formalize sometimes sweeping leadership reshuffles and transitions of power. Under recent party norms, Xi Jinping, who's general secretary of the party, would step down at the upcoming 20th Party Congress. He is 69 years old and has already served two five-year terms. But Xi has consolidated more power during his decade in office than his recent predecessors, and there are widespread expectations that he will stay on as party chief. This comes despite challenges like a flagging economy, the pandemic, and deepening tensions with the West. John Ruich, NPR News. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The Federal Transit Administration is set to outline the findings of its safety management inspection of the MBTA tomorrow morning. In June, the FTA issued the T a series of directives to address what it calls long-standing safety issues on the transit system. Those issues include concerns about the delayed maintenance, lapses in staff safety certifications, and operation control center staffing levels. The T shut down the Orange Line just over a week ago for a month for work on track and signal issues. A man sentenced to life in prison for the death of a Boston police officer will no longer be eligible for parole in 2028. Yesterday, a federal appeals court reversed a 2021 lower court decision that vacated the life sentence to 41 years for Alfred Trankler. Trankler was convicted of building a bomb that killed Officer Jeremiah Hurley in 1991 in Roslindale. The appeals court says the lower court judge needs to hold further proceedings and explain why the life sentence was thrown out. That means a resentencing may once again be possible. A $1 billion project designed to bring Canadian hydropower to Massachusetts won a partial legal victory today. Maine's Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that a voter referendum aimed at scuttling the transmission line may have been unconstitutional. Reporter Steve Missler has the story. The court's 39-page ruling says that a referendum supported by an overwhelming majority of Maine voters last year may have violated the state constitution and Central Maine Power's vested rights in the project by retroactively applying new requirements to the regulatory process. In remanding the case back to the state business docket, the court says the referendum should be deemed unconstitutional if CMP can demonstrate to a lower court judge that it engaged in substantial construction and in good faith before voters scuttled it last year. The project was initiated by Massachusetts, 
which contracted with CMP and Hydro-Quebec to meet its renewable energy targets. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Steve Missler. Former Massachusetts State Treasurer Shannon O'Brien has been appointed the new chairperson of the Cannabis Control Commission. That's the state panel that regulates the marijuana industry. O'Brien served as state treasurer from 1999 to 2003 and unsuccessfully ran for governor in 2002. O'Brien will be sworn in tomorrow. She replaces Steve Hoffman, who resigned back in April. In sports, the Red Sox will take on the Twins again tonight out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly cloudy. Slight chance of some showers tonight. The lows around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90. Thursday should be sunny, a high of 82 degrees. Sunny and a bit cooler around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 84 degrees. Right now it is 84 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation, in theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. From OCLC through worldcat.org, committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The water is receding from the streets of Jackson, Mississippi, but now little to no water is coming out of the taps. The state's governor, Tate Reeves, has declared a state of emergency after recent heavy rainfall caused flooding that aggravated problems at one of the city's water treatment plants. It means the city cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs. Reporter Kobe Vance with Mississippi Public Broadcasting is in Jackson and joins us now. Hi, Kobe. Hey. Hey. Okay, so what is it like in Jackson right now? Like, can you just describe what you're seeing? Well, from this from the mouth of our state health officer, don't drink the water. Mm-hmm. Schools are closed and doing virtual. Businesses are closing. Some medical appointments are being postponed. People are hitting grocery stores for bottled water. I spoke with Thomas Good outside of one in Jackson as he loaded water into his trunk. He says they've been getting boil water notices for months, but now it's even worse. I don't really trust the Jackson water too much. Um, Last night we used a water bottle and we poked a bunch of holes in it and we used that as a shower to try and get a faux shower going. (sighs) The state health department issued an emergency boil water notice, saying it could be contaminated with E. coli, for example. The state and city are working to distribute drinking water. I visited one of their sites earlier today, but no residents were there yet. Okay, can you just explain what is going on? Like, what is the actual problem with the city's water supply right now? Well, there's been concerns about the plumbing equipment as the city's water treatment facilities for some time. Actually, since the end of July, Jackson's been under a boil water notice. In the last few days, as we understand from Jackson's mayor, flooding from the Pearl River overwhelmed the water treatment system. A plant, a treatment plant couldn't treat all the dirty water coming in. An actual composition of the water uh, slowly, the actual composition of the flood water slowly pr- processing, and the water pressures throughout the city dropped. This afternoon, the mayor, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, said he welcomes the state's help after previous calls for assistance that have gone unanswered. Here, we think of listen. The residents of Jackson are worthy, they are worthy of a dependable system, and we look forward to a coalition of the willing 
that will join us in the fight to improve this system that has been failing for decades. This is due to years of neglect, as many white residents of Jackson have fled the city, which is now 80% black. Now the brunt of these problems all fall on black neighborhoods without a customer base to support the expensive water infrastructure. Governor Reeves is visiting the treatment facility this afternoon. I mean, Jackson's struggle with its water system, it's not new, right? Like, can you just put what's happening now in Jackson into context for us? What's the backdrop to all of this? That's right. To to start with, Jackson's water infrastructure is old, needing tons of repairs and not if not a complete overhaul. Patchwork repairs just aren't enough. And again, it's just there isn't revenue to fund what could be a billion dollar project. Mm -hmm. Just in 2021, a winter freeze resulted in weeks worth of no water for residents in some parts of the city. There's also an ongoing issue with lead in the water in some old pipes. The state and locals have been at odds for years on how to fix it all. So. I mean, how does this resolve? Do you have a sense of when the city will have clean running water again? That's the big question. It's not clear when the city's water is going to be restored or when the boil water notice is going to be dropped. The first step is for the State Department of Health to assess all the damages today. That is Kobe Vance of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Thank you, Kobe. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Tonight at the Brookline Avenue Playground in Brookline, Mass., not too far from Fenway Park, Jim Hennessy will umpire his last game. Hennessy was born and bred in Brookline, and he's called balls and strikes for Little League, high school, and adult softball teams for 63 consecutive seasons. That's about 7,000 games. Not bad for a man close to 85 years old. Jim Hennessy, I am told that your kids have been after you to retire, and I wonder what made you come around finally at the age of 84. Lisa, I was sitting on the beach about three weeks ago, and just my wife and I, late in the day, and she said to me, you know, I think it's about time. You're going to be 85 in two months, and I don't know how many 85-year-olds are still doing what you're doing. And I thought about it overnight and told her the next morning I was going to be done by the end of the month. I've been married for close to 62 years, and she's been a big part of who I am. So it doesn't sound like she's a baseball widow. Um, It sounds like she's been a major part of your life, despite the fact that for 63 seasons you've been umpiring. And I wonder, when you first started off, 1959, you were trying to earn a little bit of money, which you did, but what kept you doing it for so long? At least a year after year, it was just automatic. I I started doing Little League and then high school and softball leagues. And end of April every year, is just time to go back to work again. Yeah, you know, my connection to Brookline and the town where I was born and raised, and uh, it was just a thing that I I enjoyed doing. Why do you enjoy it? What's what's good about it? Because umpires take a lot of ribbing. I never felt that way, Lisa. I you know I always try to be fair. The only thing I ever tried to do was when I went to work at night, do the best job I possibly could, and it just became second nature to me. Tremendous people I've met. It's just something I I enjoy. So your kids, who are completely unbiased, tell me that you are the most kind, gentle, respectful man in the world. And I wonder, as an umpire, when you have to take lip from somebody who calls you a banana head or maybe does something even worse, what do you do? How do you respond? Uh, Very quietly, Lisa, I'll just go over and say, okay, you made your point. You got about 10 more seconds. (laughs) End it. No profanity. No more yelling. 
and it's over. And if they persist, I'll give them one warning, and if they persist again, I tell them to go to your, go to your car. You're out of here. <laughs> I, I've done that very few times, Lisa. I haven't done that very often. Because why? Because the first time around, it's effective enough? Yes, correct. You know, I've always been stern, but you know, I've been fair, and I've never thought anything was about me. It was, and you know, I respected them, and they respected me. That's your daughter Jane who is giving, yeah, that's me. <laughs> prompting you, yeah. and they respect you. But they do. They think the world of them. They love them uh, to death. All the guys. So, for those people who are coming up behind you and want to know how you do it, how you keep your composure, how you maintain respect, what do you say? Just be yourself. Be honest. Be fair. Don't be argumentative. I used to tell these young umpires who are coming up, the only thing you have to say is six words. Ball strike, fair foul, out safe. And say nothing else. (laughs) A man of few, meaning six words. I am a man of few words, Lisa. Yes, I am. I let my work you know, define who I was. What are you going to think about uh, at the game tonight when it's coming to an end? All the umpires I've worked with, you know, all the players, great people I've met along the way. I've umpired generations of players in Brookline. Jim Hennessy will umpire his last softball game tonight in Brookline at the Brookline Avenue Playground at 7 o'clock. There'll be a tribute to him after the game to mark his 63 consecutive seasons as an umpire. Thanks again, Jim, and congratulations once again. Lisa, very nice to talk to you, too. Thank you very much. When a recipe calls for one clove of garlic, how much should you actually use? There seems to be a growing consensus that when cookbooks tell you something will taste best with a single garlic clove, they are lying to you. Yesterday I made this soup with 50 cloves of garlic. Let's just understand this king of the allium family. If it says six cloves of garlic on a recipe, I put 12. Why this mass deception? Well, Bettina McAlintal wrote a piece for Eater trying to answer that question. Thank you for helping us solve this mystery. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so how do you approach a recipe that calls for just one or two cloves of garlic? So I would say that when I see a recipe, if it says garlic, I generally don't really read the number too hard. I sort of do whatever whatever I feel like reaching for at any given time or whatever I really feel like peeling. So yeah, it's not really something that I follow. So there is this big disconnect between like what recipes call for and what people who like garlic seem to actually want to use. Why? Like why would they lie to us? <laughs> okay, so uh, so I talked to a couple of recipe developers for the story and it seems like the main reason is that like they're partially trying to find a safe number, right? Like because anytime you're giving a person a recipe, you have the people who are going to follow it strictly and the people who will do sort of whatever they want. Having one or two cloves or sort of these smaller quantities is a way to tell people, you know, this recipe is good with garlic. And if you're intimidated by a ton of garlic, it's not an air quote scary amount. But Mm. at the same time, there's enough garlic in it that if you like are a huge garlic lover and you're like me, you're going to just multiply it. You know, you know that like garlic fits into the recipe and that whatever the amount that I'm going to use should taste good. So basically the recipe is just saying garlic, green light or red light, the amount is not important in the way that flour would be important to recipes that have flour. I think garlic sort of functions almost in this like garlic to taste way that Hmm. we are much more familiar to seeing with salt. But I think because garlic is something you can really easily quantify, you know, I think it's helpful to put, you know, these, these quantities down for some people. 
garlic lovers are a very vocal group. Is this a controversial ingredient? I mean, is this something that people are truly divided over? At this current point in time, I think garlic lovers and the heavy garlic users definitely seem like the majority. From sort of my reading, it doesn't seem like that's always been the case. You know, for example, when like Italian food was new in the United States, the fact that it was really heavily garlicky and pungent, some people saw it in a sort of off-putting way. And we've definitely reversed course on that, where people, you know, love garlic so much and they like the pungency of it. In your article, you mentioned Marcella Hazan, the famous cookbook writer who many say changed the way Americans cook Italian food. Her most legendary tomato sauce has three ingredients, tomatoes, butter, onion, no garlic. Does that undermine your thesis that garlic makes everything taste better? I think that recipe really highlights the point that I think sometimes people go so enthusiastic about their love for garlic that they ignore that there are dishes that are good without it. Like, I love garlic so much. I have a garlic tattoo, but I love that recipe, and it has no garlic in it. And I think that all of those other flavors really, like, have their opportunity to shine without all of that extra garlic flavor softening it. I did not know you had a garlic tattoo. That really shapes my understanding of your position on all of this. Yeah, I feel like I'm allowed to say skepticism about garlic since I am this committed. (laughs) There is a consideration we have not talked about, which is you and I are right now connecting remotely. We're in different studios. If we were here face-to-face in person, would there be a risk of garlic breath? I have not had any garlic yet today, but I am making pasta for lunch, and so soon there will be a risk of garlic breath. <laughs> Bettina McElintal's piece for Eater is, Why do so many recipes call for so little garlic? Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 84 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on All Things Considered, what Hollywood has taught us about teaching. That's ahead here on WBUR. And stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Just go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. A chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing with the high around 90 degrees. Thursday should be sunny, the high around 82. Sunny and a bit cooler around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs will be around 84. Again, right now it is 84 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Professor Tom Smith wrote a personal blog post about the theory that COVID leaked from a Chinese lab. Then he got a call from the dean. Some students had read this blog post and they were so upset by it that they couldn't go to class. And Did I want to apologize for posting this? The university investigated him instead. Why? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. With students heading back to school, it's a great moment to celebrate educators. And to do that, movie critic Bob Mondello is here with what Hollywood has taught us about teaching. 
Will everyone please try to find a seat? Teachers are a type in Hollywood as bound by convention as the guys who wear white hats in westerns. They're mostly young, they're always energetic, and they answer to honorifics. Mr. Chips. Miss Brody. Miss Moffat. Mr. Miyagi. Or just plain. Sir or Mr. Thackeray. Sir with love, of course. Also, if need be. Hey, what's up, teach? If that's what it takes to get their students to stand and deliver, to be great debaters, or to form dead poet societies while heading up the down staircase in a blackboard jungle. You know the type, hardworking, earnest, and most of all, inspirational, all while confronting, because Hollywood never does anything halfway, the sort of challenge that would give pause to a miracle worker. The miracle worker's Annie Sullivan, for instance, had to get through to a kicking, biting, almost feral Helen Keller, who had been deaf and blind since infancy. With only a few gestures to signal what she wants, seven-year-old Helen has no way to communicate with those around her, and initially no concept of language itself. Her breakthrough comes in what amounts to a ferocious battle with Annie at a backyard water pump, where she suddenly realizes that the motions her teacher's been making in the palm of her hand connect to the movement of Annie's lips. W-A-T-E-R, water. It has a name. W-A-T. And that they symbolize an idea, the wetness she's feeling. She mimics Annie's hand movements, spelling it back. Yes. Oh, my dear. And immediately, Helen wants other words, pounding on the earth beneath her feet. Round. Annie spells it out, and Helen spells it back. And as powerfully as it ever has on film, a whole world of knowledge opens up. Most on-screen teachers confront more conventional students and forge bonds with them over more conventional problems, kids who don't think they want to learn, who mistrust authority, who are bored, and who inspire teachers like Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society to find unorthodox ways to enliven classwork. I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way. See, the world looks very different from up here. You don't believe me? Come see for yourselves. Come on. Come on. Even though it may seem silly or wrong. This gets him in trouble with the headmaster, and that's pretty much a standard Hollywood plot development. Teachers who care, and you wouldn't make a film about them if they didn't, must not only relate to students, but must also shield them from their own parents, from school administrators, from the police, and from social forces that lead them to not value education in the first place. Stand and Deliver's math teacher, Jaime Escalante, for instance, helping Latino students to overcome first their own resistance to authority... And then when they start to succeed, he helps them overcome the unfair perceptions of administrators wielding standardized tests. Denzel Washington is up against even stronger forces in The Great Debaters, a film set in the segregated South of 1935. When his black college debate team is told it cannot compete in a national tournament, he lets them know his stake in their struggle is personal. You are my students. I am your teacher. I think that's a sacred trust. So what do I say to you now? Quit because the dean says so, because the sheriff says so, because the Texas Rangers say so. No, I am diametrically opposed to that. My message to you is to never quit. We are not quitting. Good.
The Rebel with a Class, as it were, is a relatively recent development in Hollywood. On-screen teachers were long pictured in gentler terms as protective and nurturing rather than crusading. Movies tended to subscribe to the King and I's true but sappy thought that if you become a teacher, by your pupils you'll be taught. As a teacher I've been learning, you forgive me if I boast, and I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know you. Getting to know. No tough assignments in her class, but the year that movie came out, the rougher side of that getting to know students equation was already on display in Blackboard Jungle, set in an inner city school where teacher Glenn Ford sparred with rebellious student Sidney Poitier. There was no racial issue till you made one. Why, you've got the knife out for me. Oh, man, there's a real switch. I mean, after all the trouble you caused. Boy, you really got it bad. You deny it. You gonna hit me? I'd really like that. That'll really wash you up around here. A few years later, teacher Poitier got his comeuppance in To Serve With Love. I lost my temper. The one thing I swore I would never, never do. Those kids are devils. Nothing I tried. Kids. What? Kids. That's it. And that became the new template, teachers wading into issues of race, class, generational conflict to help kids with good intentions and reliably conventional wisdom. More recently, the wisdom's been less conventional, say in the comedy School of Rock, where the teacher is almost inadvertently successful at winning over his charges. If you want to rock, you got to get mad at the man. And right now I'm the man. And who's got the guts to tell me off? Huh? You're a joke. You're the worst teacher I've ever had. Summer, that is great. I like the delivery because I felt your anger. Thank you. A tougher approach to music instruction is whiplash, where the jazz instructor seems fine until his auditioning drummer gets the tempo wrong. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I don't know. Start counting. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Uh-huh. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference. Inspiration through fear, a definite outlier. Far more frequently, movies reinforce the notion that in secular society, teaching is the closest thing we have to a religious vocation. You don't decide to teach, you're called to teaching as a profession. And as with religion, this calling is one in which the basic job hasn't changed in a thousand years. You stand in front of your flock, which expects you to be above reproach, both on and off the job. Your authority comes from on high. You need the patience of a saint, the wisdom of a rabbi, and the endurance of a And at day's end, the rewards are largely spiritual. As when Helen Keller, having pretty much worn out Annie Sullivan, demanding the name of every object around them, finally points to Annie herself. And Annie, choking back tears, spells out T-E-A-C-H-E-R. And Helen spells it back. And the lesson begins. I'm Bob Mundell.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 83 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev has died at the age of 91. That story and more ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of some showers tonight, lows around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing, the highs will be around 90. Again, right now it's 83 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wilbur in Boston, presenting Chris Bodie, Friday, November 25th and Saturday, November 26th. Tickets and info at thewilbur.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The final leader of the Soviet Union is dead. Mikhail Gorbachev waged a losing battle to salvage a crumbling empire, but produced extraordinary reforms that led to the end of the Cold War. He was 91. It's Tuesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll take a look at Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy. Also ahead, as she may be winding down her amazing career, we take a look at Serena Williams' legacy both on and off the court. And while the government has sent evacuation orders to Ukraine's Donbass region, many people remain. One sparsely open city has become a hub for Ukrainian military members taking a break from the front line. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. According to various Russian state media accounts, former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who played a pivotal role in ending the Cold War, has died after a prolonged illness in Moscow at the age of 91. Gorbachev, who decided to liberalize Soviet society, confront its past, engage Western leaders, and sign arms control treaties, arguably took the world from the brink of nuclear conflict. His actions led to the breakup of the Soviet Union. Awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990, he was seen by many abroad, including President Reagan, as a visionary, but his legacy at home is more complex, and he's seen by many as the man who engineered the collapse of the Soviet Union. President Biden today condemned Republicans who have said political violence is sometimes necessary, and the MAGA Republicans in Congress who have defended people involved in the January 6th insurrection, saying it's never appropriate. Let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement 
if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. The president was in Pennsylvania today promoting an agenda to fight crime. But we're not stopping here. I'm determined to ban assault weapons in this country. Determined. Biden, who owns two shotguns, says he's not against the Second Amendment, but he says his plan takes common sense action to reduce that kind of violence. The White House says it's ready to help as parts of Mississippi's capital are without running water or potable water. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports a water crisis is unfolding in Jackson after flooding exacerbated long-standing deficiencies at the city's water treatment plants. The state has declared a public health emergency with no safe drinking water available in Mississippi's largest city. Governor Tate Reeves says Jackson's water treatment system is failing. It means the city cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs. Reeves has activated the National Guard to help distribute drinking and non-potable water. Schools and businesses are closing as officials scramble to repair the system that serves about 180,000 customers. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. The number of open jobs rose in July after three months of declines. It's a sign employers are still urgently seeking workers despite slowing economic growth and high inflation. And Wall Street was lower by the closing bell, dropping for a third day on worries the Fed will keep raising short-term interest rates. The Dow was down 308 points, the Nasdaq down 134, S&P 500 down 44, all three major indices down about 1%. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Democratic Attorney General candidate Quinton Palfrey is ending his campaign for office. Despite winning the official endorsement of the state Democratic Party, the former former assistant AG struggled to gain ground on his two better-financed opponents. WBUR's Walter Muthman has more. With Palfrey out, the race is now between former Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell and Labor Attorney Shannon Liss Reardon. Palfrey criticized both throughout the race for their use of super PAC and private money. But he says the gap in funding and polling became too wide for him to justify carrying on. When it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be the next attorney general, it was important to me to, you know, to, to think about who would be best situated to leave the office. Palfrey is now endorsing Campbell, citing her record of public service. The primary election is next Tuesday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Emergency crews have contained a pneumonia leak at an ice rink in Tewksbury. Fire crews have announced that within the last half hour that all residents around the breakaway ice center can return home. The fire department says all people from the skating rink and the nearby area were evacuated for about three hours. No one was hurt. The former Pennsylvania Secretary of Education has been selected as the next Massachusetts Commissioner of Higher Education. The Board of Higher Ed today nominated... Noe Otega from a pool of four finalists. Current Commissioner Carlos Santiago will stay on until Ortega is formally hired. An archaeological dig is underway in Lowell. Researchers from UMass Lowell, UMass Boston, and Queen's University in Northern Ireland are involved on the site of a store and tenements once owned by Irish immigrant Patrick Keyes. Christopher Carl Smith is the chair of the History Department at UMass Lowell. He says the team is trying to learn more about the lives of Irish immigrants and commercial activity in the mid-1800s. 
He says the researchers know where the store was, but there were also outbuildings. Which were probably used for storing different kinds of items. Uh, maybe some were refrigerated, and so they would have been below ground level. And so they're trying to figure that out by looking at different kinds of soil and the different kinds of stonework and brickwork. The dig will wrap up at the end of the week. It sports, the Red Sox are out in Minnesota to take on the Twins tonight. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers tonight. The lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers earlier tomorrow before gradual clearing. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, working to improve patient outcomes and increase patient engagement with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. According to various Russian state media accounts, former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev has died at the age of 91 after a long illness. Gorbachev played a pivotal role in ending the Cold War, and many blame him for the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he had tried to reform. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1990. NPR's Moscow correspondent Charles Maines joins us to discuss his life and legacy. Hi, Charles. Hi there. Remind us of Gorbachev's role in Soviet political life. Yeah, you know, he was the last Soviet leader, uh, both as general secretary of the USSR and the only president of the Soviet Union before it collapsed in 1991. I mean, when he ascended to the post of general secretary, it was 1985. Uh, The Soviet Union had just lost three leaders in short secession, all older men who died in office. And, you know, Gorbachev seemed a remedy to that. He was just 54 years old uh, when he was nominated. He was the youngest member of the Politburo. And he was very aware of the shortcomings of the of Soviet life and the political system, and had ideas how to fix it. Uh, you know, he believed in the Soviet Union, but as a country that had lost its way, and and but was yet redeemable. And so, what was his solution to helping the USSR find its way? Well, you know, he, he introduced the concept of glasnost. It was an opening up of Soviet society that brought with it new freedoms. You know, in the press, in academia, music, cinema. Uh, talking about uh, the repressions in Russia, the Stalinist legacy of of repressions. And many, of course, will remember his word perestroika that we would hear a lot in the U.S. in this period. period. Uh, It was a policy that amounted to a push to restructure the Soviet economy and make it more dynamic. Uh, He negotiated key arms control deals with the U.S., working very closely with President Ronald Reagan at the time uh, to bring down the temperature of the Cold War and genuinely made the world a safer place with arms control deals. But in the end, he was overtaken by history. I mean, he opened up Soviet society, and many Soviets wanted even more. Uh, Even as Soviet hardliners wanted less, they tried to overthrow him in 1991. Uh, But ultimately, his great rival, Boris Yeltsin, who later became Russia's first elected president, uh, came to seize the mantle of reform in Russia, really by dismantling the Soviet Union. And that left Gorbachev uh, president of a country that no longer existed. That all was more than 30 years ago. So what had he done since then? You know, he's remained active in public life to a degree. He helped found uh, Novaya Gazeta. This is one of Russia's great independent newspapers, very much under threat these days. Uh, He had his Gorbachev Foundation, which tended to his legacy and promoted many of his ideas of world peace and trying to preserve the arms control deals of, of the late Cold War period. Uh, There were also signs of uh, difficult times that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev uh, famously did this commercial for Pizza Hut, uh, which many thought was very unbecoming of a figure of his stature. 
but he was also a doting husband. You know, family was important to him by all accounts. Uh, his wife, Raisa, was the love of his life, and they were a very public couple, uh, which was unusual for Russia. And uh, Raisa passed away in 1999, but even last year, uh, Gorbachev recorded an album of romance songs dedicated to her, which just you know, tells you how keenly he felt her absence. Hmm. How do you think he's going to be remembered? Well, he's clearly uh, one of the giant figures of the 20th century. I mean, you know, he oversaw the peaceful withdrawal of Soviet forces from Eastern Central Europe. Uh, the Cold War you know, essentially ended really without any bloodshed for which he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. His willingness to negotiate on arms control helped lower the temperature of the Cold War. And I think a lot of people forget now just how, how nervous everybody was about the idea of a, of a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the USSR. Uh, those fears really evaporated under his watch. And, you know, for many around the world, that makes him a hero. Uh, but inside Russia, it's more complicated. You know, a lot of people would say he gave up the empire for nothing. Uh, they blamed him for the breakup of the USSR and some of the economic chaos that ensued. And, and those resentments are really important because they're at the heart of Vladimir Putin's ideology today. You know, his passing, or Gorbachev's passing, excuse me, comes as, you know, Putin seems determined at great cost to essentially reassert a Russian power and turn the clock back in many ways, politically, culturally, and of course, in terms of global influence and empire. And in many ways, you could argue that Putin is hearkening back to a vision of Russia before Gorbachev introduced all these changes. That's NPR's Moscow correspondent, Charles Maines. Thank you. Thank you. Last night, Serena Williams cleared the first hurdle to winning another championship. On the first day of the U.S. Open, the 23-time Grand Slam champion defeated player Donka Kovinich of Montenegro in a 6-3-6-3 victory. Williams announced earlier this month that she plans to, quote, evolve away from tennis after this year's tournament. And if this is indeed the last time the world will see her in action, her legacy is already established, both on and off the court. Chanda Rubin is a former top 10 professional tennis player and a commentator for Tennis Channel. We reached her at the U.S. Open Tennis Championship in New York. Chanda Rubin, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you are a member of a very small club, uh, the club of people who have played Serena Williams and beat her. What is it like staring across the net, waiting to return that serve? It can be a bit intimidating simply because, you know, as a player, you know that she has one of the best serves, if not the best serve in the history of the women's game. And yeah. it's a formidable weapon. She can hit it to each spot in the court in the service box so you you don't often see it coming you can't really predict so it puts more pressure on your serve so there's a lot of different things that come into play when you're facing Serena Williams no oh. I um I was going back and reading about that match and I think the detail I loved the most was something that she told you after you won? Yes. I played her in a um, tournament in Los Angeles, and I was able to win that match in a tie break in the third set. That's like the closest a match can really be. And at the end of that match, you know, she was so kind to warm me up the next day. And just to give you a little reference, that never happens. If you beat a player or, you know, you play somebody the next day, they don't want to have anything to do with you. And so she was kind enough to warm me up. And after that, she told me, now go win the tournament. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know what? I think I should. And of course I did. 
um, <laughs> uh, you know, when you beat Serena, you feel like, okay, I'm playing pretty well yeah, and I can handle I anybody this. else across the net. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're t- we talked about her serve. We talked about what it's like to beat her, you know, at least once. What do you think, though, made her so dominant for so many years? Because she wasn't just great that year or the year after or the year after. Right. She's been great for like a long time decades it's incredible to even think about it and you know what i think sets her apart is is you know the physical skills that she has um you know she's powerful from the ground she can go toe to toe with anybody and out hit most players if not every player at any given point and so you're dealing with that factor as well how do you catch up to her shots how do you try to read and get a jump on things but i think what has allowed serena to dominate is the strength of will that she has. It is the ability to get into a pivotal moment in a match and raise her level, to just immerse herself in the competition at hand, to not shy away from that. And I think over the course of a match, a lot of players, they can't match that. Um, and a part of her legacy, obviously, and, and of her sister Venus's too, is that these were two Black women who spent part of their childhood in Compton, dominating a sport that had been seen for so long as white as elitist um you know you came up as as another black female player a few years ahead of them so you've walked that walk i wonder how much does it feel like they've changed the sport i think they've changed the sport tremendously you know first and foremost their story is one that is incredibly special and I don't think we'll see that again in sport. It's not easy to win tournaments out here week in and week out to have that kind of consistency. And they were able to do it. Then you you throw into the fact that they were so dynamic as players. You look at, you know, their games and how much fun it was to watch them. You know, they were aggressive. They were attacking players. They showed emotion, Serena in particular. Venus was a bit quieter, but even that contrast made it interesting. And then they're going up against each other. I mean, now you're getting all these eyes on the sport and the fact that they are two black women at that point and minorities in a predominantly white sport, it just brought so much interest. And you have now a whole new demographic of, you know, kids. And, and players who can relate and who are interested in the sport. So you, again, you've walked this walk to, to play at, at such a high level and then to figure out when it's time to, to leave the game. And I just wonder, any advice as she's heading into this next chapter of her life? I mean, it's, it's hard to think of, you know, any advice that you know, I could give to Serena at this stage, you know, so much of what she's doing is uncharted territory because of who she is. I do think the transition out of the game and, and into the next phase of her life, I think that can be tricky. And I think it, you know, be interesting to see how she approaches it, having more freedom, not having as much time taken up with practicing and training. And I would just encourage her to embrace it all. Yeah. She is now one Grand Slam title away from tying the all-time record. Um, how do you how do you rate her chances of one more U.S. Open trophy? Well, I first and foremost, I have and will go on record saying I don't think Serena needs to win another major. Getting through this first round—that's a huge milestone. You know, the first rounds of any big tournament, let alone a Grand Slam, are always tricky. And I think for Serena, when she gets going, 
you got to like her chances and how incredible would it be if she were able at the end of, of this year's U.S. Open to be holding the trophy. There's still a ways to go, but it's going to be fun watching the ride. Chanda Rubin, thank you. You're welcome. Chanda Rubin of Tennis Channel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, how one Ukrainian city has become a hub for Ukrainian military members taking a break from the front line. That's to head here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Help put cancer in the rearview mirror by donating your car, truck, boat, or motorcycle. More at DanaFarber.org slash cars. And Worcester Cultural Coalition, September 1st, the Hanover Theater presents One Night of Queen, performed by Gary Mullins and the Works. More at WorcesterCulture.org. In business news, Natick-based MathWorks has purchased a new office building. It's paying nearly $18 million for a 115,000-square-foot building in Natick. It's right next to one of the software company's two campuses in the town. The site is the former home of Boston Scientific Corporate Headquarters. MathWorks has not yet said what it plans to do with its new building. On Wall Street, stocks were off yet again today. The Dow down 308 points at 31,791. NASDAQ was off 135 points or at 11,883. And the S&P 500 was down 44 points at 3986. Marketplace will be coming up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. Looking for a staycation read? Our new pop-up newsletter is filled with great suggestions that will transport you to the sun and sand. Sign up now at wbur.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers tonight, but lows will be around 73 degrees. Chance of showers early tomorrow before gradual clearing. The highs will be around 90. Thursday should be a nice beach day. Sunny, the highs around 82. Sunny and a bit cooler, around 77 degrees on Friday. Saturday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 84. Right now it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Imagine if the doctors are playing catch up here. What is it like for the young people, the adolescents, the teens experiencing this pain saying, what the heck is going on? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, the front line of the Russian invasion has not moved in weeks. Cities there see shelling every night. Ukrainian officials have ordered evacuations, saying that with scarce resources like fuel and the constant threat of Russian missiles, it's just too dangerous to stay. But in a recent visit to the frontline city of Slovyansk, NPR's Alyssa Nadworny found a shuttered town where residents persist. When you enter the city, a metal sign above the road greets you. Slovyansk is Ukraine, it reads. 
And after more than six months of Russia's invasion, it still is. The electricity here is spotty and buses aren't running. Most of the people you see in the city center are on bikes because of it. Oksana Morahone and her friend Alexander Alayarov are among them. Morahone, with a bag of grapes tied to her bright orange bike, says it's a really scary existence. They're biking together for safety. They always try and stick together if they can. Alayarov lives with his wife and three kids next door to Morahone and her husband. They don't sleep at night because of the shelling. Their neighbors sleep in the hallways to get away from the windows. Morahone and Alayarov have been friends for a long time, and that friendship has kept them sane. Every night they're calling each other, asking, are you okay? How are you? Community is really important, they tell us, especially when you're in a state of survival. Morahone works as an assistant at the market. There, she says, she can see who's still here, which makes her feel less alone. According to the mayor's office, about 20% of residents remain, despite constant shelling, spotty water access, and no natural gas. Morahone tells me people stay because leaving without a place to live feels scarier. Walking through town, most shops are boarded up. In addition to the market, there's a very limited amount of businesses open. Two or three coffee shops, mostly kept up and running by the Ukrainian military, fighting on the front lines just 20 minutes away. We're here relaxing, says a soldier who goes by the call sign Petrovich. He doesn't give us his full name for safety reasons. The lines haven't moved much in recent weeks, he tells us, and a stalemate for troops means you're constantly on edge without much happening. A few blocks from the coffee shop, several onlookers have come to see the damage from a Russian missile that hit a residential building a few hours before we visit. Victoria Barachenko is crying as she tells us about the pain she feels. I'm thinking about the people who have no home now, she says. She tells us about the history here. In 2014, the city was taken over briefly by Russian-backed forces when they annexed Crimea and part of the Donbass. Here, they worked to rebuild after that. We're Ukrainians, she says. We've always been part of Ukraine. I want to live in Ukraine. Nearby, Lubav Mali, with an orange kerchief tied around her head, is listening to our conversation. What my dom? This is my house, she says, pointing just beyond the crater left by the missile. All by yourself or are you with someone? Uh, She's widowed. Her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren have all left Slovyansk for Kyiv or Europe. She passes the days writing and reciting poetry. She shares one with us. It's about bringing peace to her home. Let there be peace that is so hoped for, the poem goes. Let the storms go, she finishes, and long live the Donbass and Slovyansk. Alyssa Nadvorny, NPR News, Slovyansk, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Violence in Baghdad has now killed at least two dozen people and injured hundreds in the last two days. Supporters of the popular cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, some of them armed, clashed with Iraqi security forces, which include members of Iran-backed militias. The fighting comes as a result of a deadlock in forming a government some 10 months after parliamentary elections. There's a split between Sadr and Iran-backed groups. Sadr has now told his supporters to end their protests and to leave government areas that they have occupied. To understand more about the situation, we have reached Sarhang Hamasaid, the Middle East Programs Director for the United States Institute of Peace. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to have you. So can you just first help us understand better who Muqtadar al-Sadr is? Like He is one of Iraq's most powerful leaders. What else can you tell us about him? Yeah, Muqtadar al-Sadr uh, comes from a religious family. His father and his uncle uh, have been known as to be uh, religious credentials. In recent years, he has been able to brand himself as a Iraqi leader who is against foreign interference, including Iranian inter- interference, who uh, stands for justice for Iraqi nationalism. And Iraqi civil society leaders have allied with him in different uh, elections. And the jury is still out. How much do you believe this rebranding? Well, I understand that his block was the biggest winner in Iraqi elections last fall. But then this summer, all of his allies in parliament quit in protest. What happened there? He formed an alliance with the, 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 um, the Sunni Arabs of Iraq and uh, a major force of the Kurds, the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Uh, that gave him enough votes uh, in parliament to be able to form a government and appoint a prime minister. The uh, Iranians and their uh, allies in Iraq have managed to form what was known as the obstructing third in the parliament. So about 120, 130 votes that prevented al-Sadr from uh, uh, forming the government. The deadlock in the political process and in the electoral process led to, as you rightfully mentioned, Sutter to decide that he would actually ask all the MPs who were representing him in parliament to quit. Uh, and they did so uh, in June. And, huh. and, that main, and to this date, it is a huge point of surprise. Why did he give up this much parliamentary, parliamentary mm-hmm. power uh, in the system? Still, can you explain how this current power struggle in Iraq, how this current political situation could affect U.S. interests? Yeah, yeah. so the U.S. has several interests in Iraq. Uh, obviously, uh, from a national security standpoint, a stable um, a democratic Iraq serves, Iraq serves in a way where Iraq does not become a place for terrorism. Second, Iraq is a major oil producer. Uh, So for the stability of the global economy and for U.S. allies, uh, this is an an important uh, factor. And third, for regional stability, Iraq is an important country uh, where um, Iraq and the countries of the region uh, are unhappy with the expansion that Iran had in the region. So there are several factors that uh, Iraq plays an important role for U.S. interests. But the U.S. leverage to affect those outcomes is far less today than it was some years ago. That was Sarhang Hamasaid, the United States Institute of Peace's Middle East Programs Director. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit. See art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 5th. ICABoston.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.